Welcome to another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Mark. And I am also Rob. He's clearly high and excited to be here as we <laughs> yet again return to that old faithful a top five episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. And in this episode, we look at underrated monsters and which ones we'd all like to see come back. <laughs> the top of the show we'd like to welcome back a fandom friend Rob Lloyd how are you sir pleasure to be back guys how are you doing Rob yeah well thanks uh, Rob I was I noted and all my fans will have noted that I wasn't on the last episode of the uh, 42 to Doomsday podcast but Mark managed to somehow carry uh, the episode without me so congratulations Mark it was a joint effort with uh, young Richard so yeah we've been very happy with the tweets and reactions we had from that this morning and you were saying it was going to be too niche Mark two middle aged men talking about 1980s 8 bit computer games is clearly not niche enough try and uh, be an oasis in the sea of other white middle class nerds <laughs> talking about 8 bit computer games <laughs> male nerds talking about it you know what middle aged women from the 80s are talking about certainly not 8 bit computer gaming they're probably not talking. They're out actually living their lives. So God yeah. bless them. Rob, uh, how you been? I have been very, very busy and uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. So I've just come back from Adelaide Fringe where I did my uh, impro puppet show, The Mighty Little Puppet Show over there. And I'm currently in the middle of doing Comedy Festival where I've done about five shows, which is insane. And I'm just about to head off on my next big international tour. I'll be out of the country for about four months and I leave uh, next Friday. I'm taking Who Me back to America and I'm taking it to Canada for the first time. And then I'll be returning to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival to uh, present it again i'll be doing four months of who me all around uh, you know, north america and back to the uk which is pretty exciting i have a quick question rob i've been to your show and it is wonderful and people should get out and obviously we'll give the links later in the show have you updated it given um you know capaldi coming to the scene yeah 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 yeah. there's been little additions here and there to include uh, mr capaldi and a certain uh, non-canon doctor in the word of uh, Markia. my closing number is a big dance piece which is a like a tribute to all the the fallen doctors so that's been gradually evolving as the show has evolved over the last couple of years but the big thing i have to do is cut a lot of it because in um canada and america all shows have to be under 60 minutes and who me goes for you know an hour and 10. Uh, so i've got to do a lot of trimming and then uh, no fluffing around so i've got to do a lot of editing and also keep in all the more modern references to the new series like there's a little bit of a Capaldi reference and uh, all that type of stuff so it's just it's a show that can evolve and does evolve and that's why it's been able to last you know I've been doing this show god six years now (laughs) and it's still going because it can evolve and it does change much like the show it's based on in doing the adjustments do you sort of have you been agonizing over what to what to keep and what to leave out it's the the typical comedy or actor wanker view of so these jokes are all my babies I can't lose any of them how can I cut them and you just have to be severe you've got to get to the point of the show and uh, get to it quickly and so you don't get into trouble with the other festivals so they actually invite you back so it has been agonizing uh, and I've got to do a serious cut over it uh, next week after comedy festival finishes before I leave I don't know whether you know this but uh, we currently have a series 10 embargo I am aware that you guys have put this embargo on which is very very fascinating for me to hear 
here. I've oh. never been a part of this embargo. This is like the Seinfeld episode, the contest, where one of us is going to have to break. I'm Kramer. You're I am Kramer. breaking. I'm out. You're I'm out. out. I'm, I'm out. slamming my hand down. I, yeah. You'll be going home having a very pleasant <laughs> sleep tonight where <laughs> Rob and I will be uh, tossing and turning in more than normal. Sense. Doctor Who fandom at the moment does feel kind of like how it was in the 80s, you know, mm. where there was a lot of anger, a lot of tension, that famous, famous awkward television debate when you had Pip and Jane Baker, <laughs> John Nathan Turner and a panel of Doctor Who nerds sitting there under the studio lights sweating profusely and a young Chris Chibnall was there as well and where you had all these Doctor Who fans just bagging out these current people who adored the show and just wanted to put on the best thing possible. I've, I've got that sense right now with Doctor Who there's the mainstream audiences are turning away because they feel excluded and the the fans who are left behind are a mixture of modern fans and classic fans and they're kind of you know ripping themselves apart in this weird type of post-apocalyptic thunderdome type negativity zone so it was good to see the pilot come out where there was nothing but joy nothing but hope to try and just you know because we doctor who fans like a bit of a whinge like a bit of a groan, like a bit of a complain. So it's good to see you know, that trying to be balanced out with a bit of positivity. So my hopes are high and we need a lot of hope and positivity at the moment because the impulse to go straight for the negative, straight for the hurt, straight for the um, complain is a bit high at the moment with who. When you're saying the words complain, do you mind not looking at me? <laughs> it's just very hard to look away with those... <laughs> fetching headphones you're wearing right now they they really offset yeah, your eyes I'll, I'll tweet those later <laughs> we're all very much aware that ratings are dropping and um, there's a lot of tension and a lot of angst and accusations being thrown around about who's to blame and you know is it Capaldi's age that's causing the problems is his lack of appeal for merchandise to blame is it Moffat and his uh, writing is it just how the show has evolved over the last 10 years to this point so it was interesting to sit down and watch the pilot and find it joyous and simple and straightforward and focusing on something it hasn't done for a while character there's a lot of references in there a lot of fan wank moments that people will either arc up about or you know stand up and give applause but to introduce a new character like bill who is unlike anything moffat has written before is remarkable we've seen female leads in Doctor Who over the last five, six years pretty much be the same. You know, you look at Clara, Amy, River, all these characters, are, they're very much the same character, young, sassy, confident in themselves and, you know, sexually proud. Whereas you get Bill who is confident in herself, but she doesn't wear it on her sleeve. And she's a very endearing character, very beautifully written. And the big thing that caused a lot of controversy from more conservative Doctor Who fans about Bill's sexuality. So there was a lot going into this episode about how they're going to deal with it. And the best thing about it, it was just done straightforward. It was never, it wasn't made into an issue. It wasn't a big thing. They just went, this is the story and they presented it. So I like the fact that character was brought into the fore and the, the sci-fi was there just to push things through. So yeah, it's a hopeful start. It's a positive start. So for Moffat and Capaldi's last season, I think it's a good way to start this, you know, this final curtain call with a positive start and you know bring out you know fight that negativity and end this season and end their time with people going it's a shame to see them go as opposed to oh thank heavens their time's up so yeah i was quite happy with it 
I'm looking forward to seeing what they bring on for the next, uh, you know, 12 weeks. And the opinions of mine are just mine. Rob, are you going to put the $100 down or am I going to put the $100 down and try and break this embargo? No, keep it. It's only one episode in. No. Come on. No, you're breaking the embargo, Mark. Okay, I'm okay. Kramer. You have to wait at least right, another okay. couple of weeks yeah, before you right. go. I'll who be... was next in the... Who was it? Was it? Elaine. Elaine was next. Elaine was next. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She went to the gym. <laughs> With John F. Kennedy Jr. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So who's going to be Elaine? That's what we'll be waiting out for. Tonight's topic was actually suggested by one of our three listeners, Carrie, way back in 2015. Wow. My Rob, can you believe we've actually been going for that long? In fact, even longer? It's August 24th. 14, isn't it, that we started? No, 2013 we started. 2013? Anything longer than four weeks and I just completely lose track of time, so. (laughs) I was in Edinburgh at that time. Oh, Oh, that's right, because I tweeted you, so have a listen to this, and you didn't respond for weeks. Anyway, so. uh, I had an embargo. Hit an embargo. Australia's (laughs) number one potential (laughs) podcast. Bloody embargoes. His idea was that over the bloody drunken dinner and chicken satay. Anyway, uh, Kerry left a post on our underutilised blog in response to our top five old who underrated stories podcast rob can you remember that one uh no excellent so she said this hope you make another list about underrated doctor who monsters all the ones that you'd like to see again well carrie some 25 years later we've actually got round to the subject <laughs> this is your life this is your life and we're going to tackle this the three amigos head on giving guests the first opportunity uh you. Right. <laughs> That's me. Oh, thank you very much, Bart. I forgot to mention the rules. If we have the same answer, mm-hmm. one of us will yell out snap, snap, but we can still talk about the same discussion points. And, you know, we've got through overrated stories with not cross-pollinating at all. No, so. but I did cause some consternation about the day of the Doctor. Yeah. That's what you do podcasts for. You don't want to play safe. You've got to take risks. Exactly right. I still get heat from people coming up to me going, really? Come oh, to Wench I am? Can't walk down the streets of Melbourne, can you, Rob, without someone screaming Henry Gordon Jago in your face. Is that right? The amount of giant Muppet mice that have been thrown in my direction <laughs> is... Uh, I've never wanted to be a Celestial Chang more in my life. I want to throw something out there before Rob launches. <laughs> <laughs> the rat in Talons of Wing Chiang isn't that bad. It's not that bad. Aside from the dubious racial politics. <laughs> I think people are looking for something to flog in that story and the rat cops it in the neck. I mean... I think it's copping it somewhere else, personally. Yeah, I, I gave my opinion. I gave my opinion, especially... yeah, My disappointment in Leela Warrior Queen screaming like a, like yes. a baby girl really breaks my heart because she had proven herself that she would not scream at anything. And even Louise Jamison has tried to justify it. I'm going, come on, I know how much you love Robert Holmes. We all do. The memory doesn't cheat. Sometimes a scriptwriter just f***s up. <laughs> Hello, Stephen, if you're listening. <laughs> Embargo. Number five. My number five underrated monster and should be brought back, I th- I'd love to see them, are the Sea Devils. <laughs> Oh, cool. No snap. Underrated story. A personal favourite of yours, Mark. And I like their portrayal more in uh, the Pertwee story. The embrace of the samurai culture in Warriors of the Deep was uh, interesting. Uh, i go so far as to say misstep. But it would be very uh, fascinated to see how they incorporate this Homo reptilia water-based race 
now with the modern Silurian culture, which is you know a much more female-dominated race uh, in the Silurian culture, which I find really fascinating. So it'd be great to see the Sea Devils come back and how they blend in with this modern approach to the Silurians, especially you know with uh, you know the Pananoster gang with their uh, presence of a regular Silurian within the regular cast. Um, I thought you know the Sea Devils do really well. There's some great moments in there. It kind of loses its steam in the last uh, final episode. But yeah, the design could be updated. That could be quite cool. The meshy design could be quite good if they do a female reptile coming out of the water, a bit Boderic, a little bit <laughs> Ursula Andress. And running towards us. <laughs> Big laser gun yeah. firing in all directions. Yeah. So yeah, I think the Sea Devils could be a good reinvention within within modern Who. And especially with you know, spoilers about season 10 with... This, the Ice Warriors coming back with a potential female bent. Yeah, it'd be great to see how they could uh, modernize and reboot the Sea Devils. Yeah, a great fascinating design and they were sort of like executed in a more stock standard way but there could be a new you know, new blood. I'd agree. I mean, there's a, there's an opportunity there for uh, you know storytelling that takes a, a account of you know the the effects of uh, you know global warming and the rising sea levels and pollution mm. in the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I suppose they're obvious things to go for. But when you're doing Doctor Who, especially in the modern era, you want to be able to connect the monster with the you know the the everyday in in, in effect and sort of polluting their environment drive, driving them onto land and, and affecting humans would uh, would be something that you could do today i think yeah i'd love to see the the design of like the disc guns is quite cool i'd love to see that brought back in as well so and really after warriors on the cheap you want, <laughs> you want some sort of redemption for them don't you really because i mean let's be honest the last sort of images you have other heads sort of tilting at 90 degree a- angles to yeah. quote you know the fifth doctor himself there should have been a better way when i said it better myself <laughs> So, my Rob, what is your number five? Plant-based creatures have a noble lineage in Doctor Who, from the Varga plants on Kemble to the awesome might of the crinoid blighting England's green and pleasant land. Plants have been used to wonderful effect. Now, mention the vervoids. And people shuffle their feet and begin to look uncomfortable. Now, it is true that men in suits have never looked so transgressive or, in fact, point of fact, suggestive uh, as the vervoids, but we we do overlook their potential at our peril. Now, um, I know that the Trial of a Time Lord has virtually no love out there in the community, and that's, that's fine, fair enough. But of the four stories, I think that Terra is probably the best of an indifferent bunch, I would hazard to say. And while the vervoids are basically men in suits, from my perspective anyway, the design work on them, and unfortunately the face just looks a bit wrong, but anyway. Uh, as humans, we interact with each other, you know, warm-blooded creatures. We have, you know, mammals as, as friends and, and, and companions and whatever, you know, dogs and cats and blah, blah, blah. And we sort of, we enjoy sort of walking along the fringes of nature on the weekend and whatever. But I mean, you, you go into the heart of nature and it's a wild and dangerous place to be. You could have the vervoids sort of exemplifying that. I mean, better designed and better, uh, you know, depicted on screen and again as i mentioned before with the sea devils i mean these days we are transfixed with the environmental problems that face our planet and the vervoids in a way could be that personification of you know gaia you know the 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 earth striking back uh at humanity's depredations against her so uh, done right possibly i think the vervoids even with their slightly disturbing faces could be effectively rendered today speechless wow (laughs) 
We're talking underrated here, and you know, I mean, aside from their problematic design, the idea that they would use humans to form a compost heap. The yeah. concept of a single, you know, seed of vervoid were to land on the earth and it would decimate, you know, completely wipe out is a frightening concept. And that decision, mm. you know, number six had to have of, you know, do I wipe out one culture to save another is a fascinating high stakes sci-fi element that you can incorporate all these modern day environmental issues with. And also, you know, species and extinction and issues of, you know, Darwinism at extreme. Yes. They can be redesigned, you know, because they weren't, as highly regarded i mean we've kept the design of the zygons and the uh ice warriors but they've moved on from that ice warrior format you know so in cold war we had the ice warriors uniform actually open up and the ice warrior inside sort of like slithered out for a little bit so it could be interesting to see how they could evolve the design to make it less um less suggestive appealing to uh, certain teenage boys who don't have access to playboy or penthouse <laughs> or the internet it's the 1980s again <laughs> <laughs> i had samantha fox in the back of my door i bet you did i bet yeah. you'd want her at the back of your door as well oh, concept is amazing and the execution was uh you know problematic problematic just yeah. like just like the poor old fendal yeah. the fendal as well you're there going this is an amazing idea mm. and then you see the fendal finally show up and you go yeah that's just looking like a massive penis with tentacles <laughs> coming out of it not as bad as creature from the pit though not as bad as creature no, from the that, pit, yeah. that, that is a giant that is a green, green, green penis. Let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> a design improvement to the uh, vervoids not include a piercing of any kind. <laughs> if you have the vervoids tapping into sort of the, the way that the Varga will invade, you know, you get stung by a Varga plant and you turn into one, or even with the crinoid. I mean, there's that opportunity if a production team was daring enough to sort of go with that transmutation from human flesh to plant. And, you know, the plants and humans or humanity are two completely different species. The idea of infection and uh and uh you know cha- changing of your worldview from you know sort of a more human to a, a more communal plant thing just uh, there's an opportunity there i think with plant creatures in general and perhaps the um the vervoids themselves yeah there is that body horror element mm. of the vervoids and a lot of the you know plant-based creatures in who history was sort of like you know that creature taking over you from the inside out which is always fascinating so if they push that more and how rapidly they spread and contaminate in a species is you know, that's where there's some potential for real dinner time Saturday night horror, which is always always a joy. Mm. Eating a steak and salad while uh, watching vagina plants take over the world. <laughs> he said it. <laughs> I feel like watching the Kardashians, wouldn't it? Really? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Mark. There's nothing as natural as plastic you now. Plant life within them—they're all plastic. What's yours? I'm going from the pervy to the shambolic, and I'm actually going to go for the mandrels. <laughs> <laughs> Do I keep going? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to hear the justification. Okay, so look, I do have a, some say, demented soft spot for the Nightmare of Eden. You have brought that up pretty much I every do. podcast I've been on. You have been trying to defend... I can't defend the indefensible in some ways. But it's like horror of Fang Rock. I mean, it's just such a bad thing. Oh, <laughs> oh. Purely said that just to get a reaction. Just to write, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> the mandrels, basically, if you think about it, when the original Abominable Snowman came out, the Yetis were quite cuddly toilet roll holders. And when the Web of Fear came out, their transmutation to much more scarier creatures. Mm. So with the mandrels, if you actually remove some of the flares a bit, get them a little bit thinner, get really big glaring red eyes and fangs so sharp that you could actually slice a, a film print of the space pirates through. And a story with an anti-drug message that they uh, youth of today just say no could be used, but in a subtler way to say uh, train spotting. I think we could uh, improve uh, somewhat on the Mandrills last TV appearance, which was actually on Wogan to launch the uh, trial of a Time Lord season. Mandrills? Hmm. Is that a brave choice, you think? Or deluded? Well, you've effectively redesigned them so completely that they're a different looking monster, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you a little bit of the flares back. We'll get a bit of flair. We, would need, yeah. we need a little bit of flair. And can you imagine him cuddling Peter Capaldi? Like running up and giving him a cuddle? Be yeah, hilarious. be uh, a sight to be... But, you know, in the age of um, dropping a <coughs> Series 10 spoiler here, with the return of the Mondasian uh, Cybermen, uh, why not bring the Mandals back exactly as they were, as a homage to that great, highly regarded... <laughs> Tom Baker classic <laughs> That's my number 5 And that's the Mandrels <laughs> Not the Bangles The Mandrels The Bangles should come back Oh yeah I will say One school holidays I sat down with my daughters And watched two Doctor Who stories One of them was The Mask of Mandragora And the other one was The Nightmare of Eden And they actually preferred Nightmare of Eden Because it was Far more colourful And fast moving Well there you go Well the actor from um, Mask of Mandragora Just passed away recently Tim Pickett Tim Smith. Pickett Smith. Yes, yeah. yes. Beautiful voice, amazing voice. I yes. love his voice. Number four. Number four for me. They mm. have made their appearance. I haven't listened to it because it is big finish, and oh there's God. just so much to sift through. <laughs> I want to see the return again with the body horror thing. Wirren. I want the Wirren. Oh, back. nice choice. Yes. Any snap? Any snap? No. Boom. Thumbs up for that choice. And just imagine a modern design keeping that, keeping the actual shape and structure making it more movable and yes some cgi stuff with that i can imagine a modern design and it's called aliens (laughs) (laughs) don't think i could think of a xenomorph just hiding in a locker and just falling out dead (laughs) Uh, yeah the we're in a great idea and like I i think there should still be a tribute to the bubble wrap uh, evolution. I think that would still have to stay in there in some way, shape, or form, just to keep that retro connection. The Weirin would be an amazing addition to the modern series. They're just such a dark, primal creation, and just that body horror of your body completely becoming something different, and not in you know the plant-based way can be a little bit ridiculous unless done really, really well. But with that, you evolving into a space space insect is just horrifying mm. um and i think they could yeah and arc in space is a really tight you know claustrophobic four parter and it could be kept that way as well you know trapped in a anywhere in any environment and trying to avoid those creatures coming out and you know decimating all of humankind i just have one to show the power yeah of like the weird version of dalek from yeah that's from, right uh, just, have one. just one just decimating and causing chaos that's mm-hmm. a great choice actually my two strongest memories of watching Doctor Who in the 70s, and any new version would have to really strive to match the impact, is uh, is Keeler in uh, Seeds of Doom, you know, that sort of half transformation. But Noah in Ark in Space revealing his arm and just his face crumpling in anguish as he beats it mm. against the console, that you, you would go a very, very long way to beat the true intimate horror of a scene like that, even today. And that's the thing, Ark in Space and Alien are a good comparison because Alien is a B-grade horror script, B-grade sci-fi horror script, that if it was handled by anybody else, would come across as as Ark in Space, really. But they got 
an A-grade director on the rise. They got a, a budget where they could afford it and a, 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 a great cast. A great cast. Mm. And Noah is a great actor. But mm. if he was support... The actor who uh, played Noah... Kenton Moore does an incredible job as Noah. And he's like up to A-grade level uh, actor like the cast of Alien. But he's let down by, of course the BBC set design doing the best they could, you know, and I'm never going to bag them out because, oh, the wobbly sets, they were given a, a minuscule budget and how they made it work shows their creativity. But just imagine Ark in Space script with, you know, a Ridley Scott type budget and the Wirren would be equal, if not in many ways, more terrifying than uh, the Xenomorphs from Alien because the Xenomorphs, you know, in, when they're in their full form, they just you know, rip you apart or get you with a second head. But those early stages of the face hugger mm. taking you from inside is very much like the you know the lava inside um, the lava inside uh, all those humans back in the in Ark in space. So that's always been a, a great monster that could come back in you know proper form as opposed to a uh, big finish audio. My Rob, what is your number four? Well, my number four is. Uh... Kronos the Chronovore. <laughs> you, now, you thought our computer games podcast was niche. Oh my This gosh. is niche. Which version of Kronos do you want though? Do you want the helmet and wings? Or do you want the cheeky gold sparkly... I'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> okay. So Doctor Who would occasionally depict alien beings whose abilities and powers transcend that of normal monsters and approach the standing of a god. The white and black guardians and Fenric come to mind. While the depictions of beings like this was mostly spot on, aside from a clearly hemorrhoidal ranting old man with a rattled stuffed raven affixed to his head... (laughs) Kronos the Kronovore was very much a missed opportunity. Of course, any actor stuck in a body stocking with feathers glued to it, zipping around the studio, flapping his arms, hardly exudes authority. But the idea behind the Chronovores is a sound one that a careful production team today might like to harness. Um, Now, the modern series, if nothing else, is grandiose. I mean, it's always going for the end of the universe here and the end of the universe there. And a creature of time like, you know, the Chronovores um, would be something that, you know, you you could tap into and I think depict pretty well. And the whole idea of, you know, I mean, Doctor Who is ostensibly a show about time travel and there's very little, you know, there's very little time travel that actually goes on. So a creature of time, a creature that eats time, a creature that moves through time, um, you, you wouldn't necessarily have that front hand centre, but you could have its worshippers, I suppose. Uh, and and, reason, and and well depicted, um, I, I think you could just about get away with something like that today. That would have been done really well on Father's Day. Instead of having the Reapers, you could have had giant chickens come back. Look, RTD was very, very loath to bring anything back in that first series, apart from the uh, Starman heads. Interesting choice. Do you watch The Flash at all? I do. Yeah. Time Wraiths? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a very similar concept. Well, Moffat's done quite a bit of time travel stuff whereas yeah. you know, uh, Russell T just used it as a means to an end much yeah. like how most of the classic era was done mm. whereas Moffat went let's see how we can play with time mm. so it seems a bit of a no brainer that he would incorporate those time wraiths element as like you know from the dark past or you know like a myth or something like that mm. but yeah they've never really um, brought it back but when you get into omnipotent creatures and teachers, keep creatures that are seen as gods like that's dangerous ground to go on because like with X-Men Last Stand proves us when you've got Dark Phoenix comes who's so powerful she can destroy the world 
but you can't have a, use her power until right at the very end. So she's standing around for an hour and a half, and when she starts to use it, she can't obviously use it because she's gonna destroy the world, so she has to be killed. So anytime you bring in omnipotent creatures, you can't really see them use the extent of their power because the show will be over like that. So it's always, how can we hedge our bets? How can we stretch it out? So finding that way of focusing or you know harnessing what those carnivores can actually do as opposed to focusing on this you know godlike status they have that's what i'm more mm. interested in the devouring of time the eating of you know anomalies or mm. issues that yeah. shouldn't have happened is quite fascinating within who you know and, and the doctor running away from those could be quite interesting anything close to that concept for moffat would be the weeping angels where they feed on the energy yeah. of a potential, potential life yeah so yeah but not, not with any sort of chicken wing action, <laughs> really. Probably what they're missing, let's be honest. What's they? your number four, Mark? My number four is the Ogrons. <laughs> Stephen Moffat missed a trick the other night when he uh, brought back the disco robots. He could have had the Ogrons fighting alongside the Daleks in that war. The Daleks used the Ogrons to get into those hard-to-reach places. Uh, but the characterizations from the 70s, i.e. the slow and dim-witted, uh, would definitely need an updating these days. And the, the new series could say they've evolved into uh, something else. Well, they did devolve the macra. They That's were right. highly intelligent crabs and then they became unintelligent right. just beasts. So the ogrons could yes. evolve. And they could run normally and they could talk normally. So when they say things like no complications fluently and with confidence, the fear of being edited out of any special edition DVDs would be removed. <laughs> I do enjoy, though, we have found the enemy. And then the other guy goes, no complications. <laughs> it's all it's good. Choice, bro. Relax, guys. Exactly. Good. And they cut it out the special edition. I was in the cinema with Dan Hall, and I stood up and said, what have you done? <laughs> That's the best line. Anyway, your thoughts on the Ogrons, chaps? What was the thinking behind introducing the Ogrons? Was it just to give sort of Dalek allies who could speak? Well, the Ogrons were brought in because originally Day of the Daleks wasn't actually a Dalek story. That's right. But then some complications or some... No complications. uh, (laughs) They sorted it all out and they said, well, it's the start of our third season. Let's start it off with a bang and let's bring the Daleks back. And so Louis Mark then had to... It was just some alien race that they invented that said, no, let's bring in the Daleks. And that's why in many ways it's a really it's like a really good Dalek story because it doesn't fall to all the Terry Nation traps of what he just usually do in all these other stories. But yeah, the Ogrons were a side effect of that. And so they were meant to be the henchmen of the Daleks, which they never really used before. They just went they would never associate themselves with anything less inferior than themselves. But they were brought in because of sort of like a, an after effect or the, the leftovers of that original story. And then they carried on in just only in the, the Third Doctor era. So that they, they were seen again when um, the Master returned and the Daleks were briefly in uh, Frontier in Space. So that's hmm. only it. That very small appearance and they're sort of like that echo of that former script before the Daleks were introduced, that's where they're, they're kept. And they made a very strong presence. But they could be used in a, yeah, a different sense. We went to the Ogron's planet in Frontier in Space. They could be there as like, yeah, guerrilla you know, merchants of fortune, like the A-team of, of Doctor Who. They're, they're, they're hired out. They're hired thugs. But they could be more like, you know, the expendables in this new version where they're a bit more intelligent. They just go from conflict to conflict and throw their weight around. Can you imagine the Ogrons being in the A-Team? I pity the fool. <laughs> I don't like to fly. Evolving them in some way so they're not just half-wit. They're quite vicious. They're almost embracing that, like, primal, simian-type nature that they move quite fast. They could. It's been done to death, but, like, that parkour-type thing 
blending it with the modern Planet of the Apes style stuff that they can just move like lightning and they can jump from place to place could be quite terrifying. So they're mm. fought, they're fast, they're violent, they're they're aggressive, could be um, brought to the fore and bring a bit of, you know, seriousness back to the Ogrons. Like, you know, they've taken away all the the threat of the Centaurans. Now they could put that threat back into the Ogrons. It could be, a, yeah, it could work if it's done correctly. Number three. Uh, okay, well, they're not really a monster, but I do like them as a race. But you did mention the Ogrons, so I'll go with Frontier in Space. I want the Draconians back. I love the Draconians. Hmm. Not only because they were my favorite Doctor's favorite creature, hmm. but that whole samurai culture, that whole, they, they were a race that existed in six episodes of classic Doctor Who. And they had a culture, they had a hierarchy, they had uh, how they behave in diplomatic circles and in social circles. They were a three-dimensional race. And I think that that is what's crying out in modern Doctor Who is not just... Comedy know, value. Yeah, not just yeah. comedy value or just not just a gimmick monster. Yeah. I want to see a real race that we can relate to. And that's why, you know, Star Trek has been such a success. We find the depth and the layers to the cultures of the Bajorans and uh, the Vulcans and stuff like that. So yeah, and I think the Draconians would be a perfect race to be brought in and you can find out more and more about their culture, both the male and the female. Especially in the Frontier in Space, it's talked about how the females are of a subservient nature, which was like all the races in... uh, The 70s. In the 70s, like yeah, Peladon as well. Mm. Um, So it would be great to see that evolution to see how, you know, the women fought against that, the females of their culture fought against that, the samurai nature of it as well is very cool. So yeah, I'd be very happy to see the Draconians back. My life at your command is still one of my favourite uh, mottos to, to speak out. And with the, the hand flourish as well at the, the same hand time. hand flourish, yeah. my life yeah. at your command, yeah. yeah. I think they'd be yeah beautiful to bring back. Diplomatic monsters. Diplomatic monsters, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And there's an honour, an honour to their race and an honour to their um, culture, yeah, which was very, very cool. And a lot of people bag out Frontier in Space because it's just go from prison cell to prison cell to prison cell. But the Draconians really lift them up. And it's great work from, you know, Malcolm Hulk knew how to write a, and mm. create a, a species. He did it with um, Southerians as well. Not going to disagree with that one at all. I agree with the Draconians. I think there's an opportunity there, I think, as you were suggesting, that they become a sort of a more regular race that that appears, you know, sort of, you know, once maybe once a season. Yeah. And a chance to look at their society from sort of the, from the inside. Because, I mean, they are a, a great design and um and an ambitious design for the 70s as well and, mm. and typically i mean you know you, you don't get a chance to look at the culture of a of a of a race in doctor who they're either you know trying to take over or, or kill you so you only get to see one side of them but there's an opportunity there to see a as much as you can a sort of a fully fledged uh, society an alien society the modern Silurians have kind of taken over the whole samurai culture which was a part of the draconians but i think they're strong enough as a as a culture yeah once in a while being a part of like tapestry of the modern who universe could be you know enriched by having them there that's what i think i'm always got a soft spot for the draconians I'm surprised with the, it sounds ridiculous, diplomatic ties, that they weren't brought back into, say, uh, things like Monster of Hell, but the Galactic Federation. Yeah, exactly. And you would have had an obligatory draconian somewhere yeah that could, have, uh, that, that could have elevated monster of peladon from being the dirge it was <laughs> not my favorite let's be honest oh no no uh you're number three rob the murka there's an awful silence there okay <laughs> 
Now, in my head, at least, the Merker is a powerful creature of the abyssal ocean depths, exuding a green, inky, toxic substance of indeterminate origin that has mind control powers so strong they induce otherwise level-headed villains to engage in sub-iron fist martial arts and is thus a beast worthy of a return. It isn't too late, Stephen. Uh, actually, it is. It is too late. Uh, in the worries of the deep, ambition clearly outpaces budget and time. But the Merker, if given that time and budget... Could have been, a, well, at least a decent monster, not necessarily a returning monster. In fact, if Doctor Who ever comes back as an animated show, it's the sort of monster with the sort of design that would be perfect for any aquatic-based adventures. I'm a huge fan of the Mirko, especially from um, Blood Tide, which is an audio adventure with Colin Baker and Evelyn Smythe. And the Mirko returns in that one, and it's really horrifying, and it's done brilliantly. The audio version of it, you can feel that power and that size and that just that dominance of that this undersea creature which was controlled and it's a shame that yeah the only example we have is the uh, pantomime horse ingrid pick kick but they could have turned the lights down that's the thing about <laughs> yeah. warriors of the deep and that scene in particular it goes into sort of red flood lighting just turn the lights down and shoot it as much as you can in the shadows if you can yeah. and look it'll make it slightly better but at least if you're looking at it it's dripping green You've got to give it some help. And it's also out of its element. The Merca should be in the water. So I'm thinking, you know, who in the water? So we're thinking Jaws, we're thinking Deep Blue Sea, we're thinking Lake Placid. You know, mm. bring that sort of like primal element of fear of the water because something's underneath. Bring that to Doctor Who. We haven't done that yet. The last time we did that that I can remember is Paradise Towers. And that ended poorly. <laughs> the yellow peril yes there should have been another way Rob <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I'm a huge fan of the Merker and that's really alien type creature but it's born on earth type of thing is great and it's you know the Silurians had the pet Tyrannosaurus Rex and the sea devils have the uh, the pet Merker which I kind of think is a great idea but yeah really bring the horror to the to the water which they haven't really done on who Unless it's, you know, John Pertwee riding a hovercraft or a, a jet ski or a whatever the hell he was on. Whatever he wanted to ride and then own himself. Back. Or at a very cheap rate <laughs> My number three, guys, thank you very much for asking, is uh, sort of sticking loosely with the underwater connection that Rob mentioned before. And I went for the Hemivores. Wow. Mm. The last gasp of a decent monster uh, in the classic series. When I saw this way back in 1989, <coughs> I was genuinely uh, creeped out. When these barnacle-encrusted monsters, who unlike the sea devils, spluttered from the ocean bubble-headed style and water leaking out of their sides, the Hemovores actually rose majestically from the misty water with their talons uh, stretched out. How good it would have been to actually see those uh, creatures, for example, uh, be included in, say, Under the Lake, uh, swimming alongside the ghost of the Doctor. Yeah. So I think the Hemovores still stand up particularly well, especially for the time they were made. What I like about the Hemovores is the different stages of evolution. Mm. So you've got like the girls who have just been infected, so they've yeah. got that whole vampiric type of look. And then you've got more of the, the settlers who have got a little bit of barnacles, and then you've got the fully evolved monstrous ones with yeah. barnacles all over them, and you see their, their fangs yeah. come out yeah. and protrude just when they're about to bite Ace. Mm. So I love that evolution, so it's not just they all look the same. No. That... And that's complicated for the 
poor old uh, hard workers at the the costume and makeup department but to see all those different types and each one's an individual in some way shape or mm. form was really fascinating to see that they didn't just all look the same yeah which we kind of get a bit of like all the the scarecrows in family of blood all look the same for some reason all the jadoon look the same but there's only one the lead jadoon that you can see and the other ones have just got their helmets on just like the centaurans so to see this gradual evolution of all the different types of infection mm. of the hemovore was really beautiful to watch in Fenric and would be great to see that back mm. my Rob um, I can only agree <laughs> I will say actually no I've had a chance to think <laughs> The idea of the Hemovores are, I suppose, creatures from far future of, of Earth, which is, you know, grotesquely polluted, and, and they're the sort of the, the evolution at that point to survive that. Again, it speaks to sort of what we're facing or what we've been, you know, what humanity sort of dealing with at the moment in terms of I don't know, climate change again and, and, and the idea of polluting our, our environment. So if you want something that will re- resonate with a modern audience... Uh, then the Hemovores uh, could could do so quite well. Sticking with the Hemovores, the the ancient one. Forget that. We can forget the yeah. ancient Re- one. Recon yeah. him out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of looks like you know, SpongeBob SquarePants. Disappointing. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, those Hemovores and Salt Lake House Society has you know just decayed, and that's how their bodies have evolved. Is a mm. yeah fascinating concept. Good choice, Mark. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> <laughs> Number two. We go for a modern creature yep. that hasn't been brought back. That, yep. Um, really effective, really powerful, and really one of the most inventive monsters of the modern era. The boneless. I want the boneless back from um, from Flatline. Oh yes. Yeah, the graffiti yes, creatures. Yes. Yes. Uh, we could. There's a lot of potential for. Um, the boneless to come back and there's even been suggestions uh, from uh, Richard Watts who's a big Doctor Who fan from 3 Triple R of imagine going to the boneless world imagine a whole 2D story of you know the Doctor and his companion trapped in the 2D world and trying to get back into the 3D world could be a fascinating concept of how it works and bringing a new element to who and how to use the camera and how to use the environment the deaths within flatline were just remarkably creative and terrifying like being sucked into the to the ground mm. or becoming a part of the graffiti of a wall and just the tilt of the angle sees that you've been just really fascinating stuff um i think yeah just those images of the the graffiti creatures moving around was just fascinating to see and beautiful to watch and I'd love to see them uh, come back yeah a really interesting creation where they come from maybe exploring their origins a little bit but you don't want to go to the extreme of uh, bringing them back too much so that they lose their potential like with uh, the weeping weeping angels angels. (laughs) great choice great story too yeah amazing story still Mm. holds up the boneless are actually a a frightening uh, creature aren't they so yeah, I, look, I agree. I, I mean, I can't, I can't say anything against what what Rob's argued for there. It, it is, it is a very good monster. Yeah, but uh, with Moffat leaving, I doubt very much whether we'll see it again. So, echoing the Draconians from earlier in the podcast, my choice would be the Slovene. Ah, the Slovene. Here are a species of monsters that achieved unusually for Doctor Who, uh, but echoing the Draconians, as I said, a measure of individuality for each creature within the Slovene family. They're underrated for all the obvious reasons. I mean, there's the dodgy CGI and the chase scenes that doesn't help, but of course the farting does get in the way, sadly. Uh, but the idea of a criminal family not really intent on... I mean, they're intent on stealing and theft and, and, and a criminal escapade as opposed to a sort of a conquest and, and, and crash uh, is an interesting one. And, and given the circumstances with a rapacious elite dominating the world, um, it's something that you could, again, go for a, another modern depiction. So 
Uh, look, I didn't like the depiction of the Slovene. I can't even pronounce the word for some reason. Slovene. Do you think Ian Levine? You can say the Rexacorical Fabulous. I can say Rexacorical Fabulous. So the Slovene didn't come with uh, a lot of uh, claws when they first were shown, but as with any monster in, in, in Doctor Who, if you have, have a bit of a, a rethink and a rejig and, and get listen to that feedback, um, you can come back with it for a second bite and. Uh, and do pretty well, I think. Well, they did do well. Like, they brought her back for Boomtown. But yes, yes. But she's she's largely in a human form, though, isn't she? And I kind of like that. And that's what Who does well. You know, the, the alien within, the other body possession is great. That's why Pyramids of Mars is great, because you've got Bernard Archer doing an amazing job being possessed as opposed to trying to create it in suit form. And they have appeared again in um, Sarah Jane Adventures. So, yeah, the Slovene as a... Like you said, I like that, you know, those small-time criminals. They're not looking for world domination. They're not looking for universal domination they're just using a planet as a hustle to get what they need and they don't care what how they destroy their world in the process they're just trying to get what they need is a great concept that you know small time approach to alien uh, scamming is quite fascinating and uh, gets you away from the normal monster trying to kill all of humanity are they doctor who's ferengi yeah in some ways yeah 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 um yeah they're all about the dollar they're all about Mm. the you know getting ahead trust yeah. just you know and that the whole family that you know you had the family of blood and they were sort of like that more evocative evil family association whereas the Slovene were more like you know you know um you know the Cray brothers yeah the Cray brothers yeah, <laughs> yeah the green street yeah. hooligans type of yeah. thing yeah the you know street level um you know uh, misfits mm. which I kind of like I like that concept and that could be explored more in human form or in full you know full get up could they have done Time Heist? Yeah. It's hustle, isn't it? Hustle in space. Very much so. Mm. Very much so. So my number two... <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's actually the Vashna Dorada. Yeah, excellent choice. It's actually, it was a very genuinely uh, creepy monster uh, who lives in the darkness and casts shadows even when uh, they enter light. Uh, where Moffat has deluded and, has, let's be honest, milked the angels uh, completely drive originality with each uh, subsequent appearance. All they need really is another dark type of story, so potentially something like Hyde, for example, where they could have had another, they had that threat, the Vashandarada and the girl in the temporal, mm. whatever she was. But surprisingly enough, they've actually been brought back many times in the comics. Right. Uh, against the 11th Doctor and 10th Doctor, but uh, never have made a uh, another TV appearance, which is, I think is a great shame because I thought they were really, uh, really effective. He does really well in those simple concepts, like the angels originally, you know, the whole... That whole game of sort of like, you close yeah, your eyes and get closer. The Vash and the Rider yeah. was like, the shadows are attacking you. You know, with Listen, it was the threat under your bed. That's right. Um, and Breathe, it was about, you know, how long can you hold your breath for? Mm. All those... Basic fears. Just to push back on that slightly, I think the ideas, those sort of ideas are so simple that if you did bring those sort of monsters back again and again, there's not enough really to hang on them and you would rapidly run out of interesting scenarios to put them in. I mean, with the Vash and Narada, I mean, you're basically going to have to have a scenario where the lights are off again and again and again for them to have any utility and while they are look i don't deny what mark's saying that they are very creepy and you know the the whole flesh eating thing is is just very disgusting um it it sort of loses its impact you know if you if you go again and again and again with them the whole less is more approach would work though in terms you don't bring him back every year like moffat's done with the angels you'd bring him back sparingly so I wouldn't. I would say maybe once every three years. I understand what you're saying about the. It's a. It's a basically one note in terms of a, a potential storytelling, but I think just to give give the angels a rest, <laughs> do well, something you, else. You see a variation of 
the Vashna Rider in class, the spin-off, I'm sorry to bring up, deeply sorry, but there's the Shadowkin in that, and they're the lead bad guys in in class, and they're just diluted version of Vashna Rider, and they're, they're used far too much, too excessive, and they add too much to it, and it takes away from that original concept that the shadows can kill. That's a good yardstick to go, let's not do that with the, mm. with the Vashna Rider, let's keep it simple, keep it basic, and... Less is fun. more. Yeah, less yeah, is more. Less is more. So you've actually given me another reason not to watch it. <laughs> All you need to do is listen to a, a Nerd Out podcast, Ooh. where we review every episode, cross-promoting my own podcast here, where we reviewed every episode, and I've never been more scathing of a TV show ever. One of the worst written characters in Doctor Who history is in that show. A character called Ram. Was he the guy who lost his leg? Yeah. Oh, Ram the man. Ram is absolutely horrible he's either angry or upset or he does not have any range of characters he is a horribly written character as recommended by Rob Lloyd go and watch class because <laughs> we didn't was yeah. it a grind doing it every week I tried the first two episodes and I just stepped away and then Sandro my illustrious uh, co-star said well we've got to review it all so I had to watch the remaining six episodes in like two days Oh, it was a grind. There's one very good creative story in there, which focused on the only good character, who was Miss Quill. She was amazing. Number one. Numero uno, Mr. Lloyd. What is it? Do you need a drum roll? Drum roll, please. <laughs> My number one monster I want back, the Tractators. I adore the Tractators. The concept of the Tractators, the idea of the Tractators, no matter how much they lost their way within Frontios, Frontios is still a special place in my heart, even though it is written by Christopher H. Do you know how good I am, Bidmead? For all Bidmead. <laughs> I like him. Well, he likes himself as well, so he's all right. Yeah, the tractors are great, and that visceral, again, like, you know, Moffat deals with the thread under your bed, holding your breath, the shadows are alive, that idea of the earth, the hungry earth, mm. which they kind of touched on in The Hungry Earth with the Solarians written by Chibnall in season five, but to bring the tractators back and, you know, wherever you are on the ground that can suck you down is a, still a scary concept. And it's been explored in sci-fi forever. You know, mm. the earth can, you know, the earth is hungry. Yeah. It consumes you. And the tractators could be designed in a better way so that they could actually you know, move. move properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And have animation and uh, life and, you know, opposable digits. Mm. Um, that concept of the tractators is really cool. And the horror that, you know, you see Mark Strickson go to, you know, he goes, he amps it up to 11 to get the, horror of um, the tractators the race there. memory thing and yeah. yeah yeah and the yeah. the pestilence that they bring to to races is really yeah. fascinating i'd yeah. love to see them brought back and they're highly intelligent really intelligent like super intelligent so the doctor has to work his ass off to to trick them mm. that type of stuff i love seeing so uh, you've got that core visceral fear of being sucked under the earth you've got a cool design that could be made even cooler with modern uh, effects and they're intelligent. They're really smart. And there, there is a, uh, a culture and there is a, a history, a backstory to their, their culture. They're not just like the quarks or the dominators. They're not just, they're not token monster here. They mm. have a backstory, which, yeah, which we all want. We want creatures that we can re- you know, not relate to, but we can see where they come from. We can see a pattern. We can see a, a society. The reason why Frontios works, in my honest opinion, is that claustrophobic feel mm-hmm. of that. So if you were going to do a modern take on it, would you have it in a similar sort of claustrophobic setting? Or would you 
let them roam wild a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of potential for them to explore more, and then you get lost in the end of Frontier, so sort of like the TARDIS being split up and put back together. And stuff that put back together. Yeah. But then get back to that visceral thing of what they are, what what they want, and the Mister Bean sort of hand twirling actions yeah. that are doing at the same time. But I think the haunting pan music is actually really makes it. There's some great music. Yeah, some great music. Paddy Kingsland, completely. Yeah, so Tractators would be amazing to be brought back. Fantastic. Uh, did the dreaded Big Finish bring them back? They did. Big Finish did bring them back. They brought back pretty much everyone. They brought back Magnus Greel. They brought back... Um, they brought back Hand of Fear. They brought back um, Morbius. They brought back pretty much everything. Did they bring back the War Machines? Damn, they should bring back the War Machines. <laughs> <laughs> Wotan Wotan lives 13 box set exactly oh yeah 28 with the Bandrill Ambassador <laughs> chuck in with the Weisinger show for the Melbourne Comedy Festival too the Bandrill Ambassador sock puppet show but Rob didn't get the uh, knitting finished in time damn it so we could have had a double bill next time next time there's always next year Rob <laughs> now my Rob what, what is your number uno well I'm going to be slightly controversial here or maybe not I'm not quite sure well, again <laughs> you've been controversial all bloody night <laughs> I'm going to go my number one choice is the Cyberman <laughs> <laughs> now for all the brilliance of their initial design and according to the trailers we'll be seeing that later on in the year the Cyberman quickly devolved into a generic species of robot to the point now that a store mannequin wrapped in tinfoil would be more menacing than the uh, tin toy soldiers stomping their way through the new series at the moment. The sad fact is that no one has handled the core idea of the Cybermen as well as they might. The, the Cybermen are effectively desperate people doing desperate things, and the Mondasians took the most desperate measures of all. They surrendered their humanity to metal and plastic in a, I think, failed effort to survive. They instead rendered themselves as walking, talking corpses, shells of what they once were. The opportunity was there very early on to build on that desperation, to make them pathetic and terrible at the same time, to inflict their quote-unquote cure for illness and death on those they conquer. Instead... Future production teams took the piles of least resistance, and as mentioned before, the Cybermen became a marketable range of toys instead of the twisted versions of humanity they always should have been. So are you saying there's only one good Cyberman story, and that's uh, Spare Parts? I'm putting aside the question of good Cyberman stories versus... Um, a realization of the monster themselves. Yes, there are good. There are good Cyberman stories. I mean, Earthshock. Obviously, everyone will put their hand up and say Earthshock is a good Doctor Who story that has Cybermen in it. But in terms of what the Cybermen represent, is we all you know, no one likes the idea of getting sick. I mean, I've been sick in the last year, and I haven't never was in love with that. And no one wants to die. I mean, it's all a fact of life. But I mean, what the Cybermen represent is the is, is going to the nth degree to live. That doing anything is justified as long as it, it prolongs life. And if you have to sacrifice your humanity, if you have to sacrifice your 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 physical being to metal and plastic in order to survive, that's justified. And if you look at it from one way, that is a that is a terrible thing to inflict upon yourself because you know life is a natural process. And the Cybermen have tried to arrest that because of you know of, of a fear of dying, of a fear of illness, of a fear of you know ill health. Um, and that's not ever shown, as far as I can see, ever in the in the in, in the TV series. I mean, if you listen to Spare Parts, it is. Spare Parts is justly regarded as one of the great uh, Cyberman stories because of what is the depiction of the Mondasian society and what they are willing to put themselves through to survive and then the damage that is inflicted on innocence in the pursuit of that attempt to survive. Uh, and you don't see that in the TV series. It's really, it's really sad. And now with the new series, 
it is that marketable toy. It is the stomping in unison marching robot. They're not. They're not and a, a catchphrase. So, and a catchphrase. And they're not. They're not in any way recognizable. There's no recognizable remnants of humanity there. They're just a robot, and it's really a, a mess. I think it's the biggest, other than you know, torching episodes in the seventies. It is the biggest missed opportunity, I think, in Doctor Who. Yeah, they really did become. You know, it was a beautiful, fascinating concept created by Kit Peddler, and then it became as soon as you know, Troughton came in, it became well, we've we're losing the rights to the Dalek, so let's just have monster this, of the week. Yeah, monster yeah. of the week thing. And you, yeah, and you, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's a great, do- you know, when you talk about Earthshock, it's a great Doctor Who story where the Cybermen are involved. There isn't a great televised Cybermen story, which is purely because the Cybermen are there to be explored. They're just there in the background and all that type of stuff. They, they And they, you know, did a botched job in uh, Age of Steel mm. uh, and the Rise of the Cybermen where they took elements of... Yeah, spare parts, all the you know, the really horrifying parts. And Russell T. Well, well, let's incorporate that into my story and try and gain some extra emotion. And didn't work. And it didn't work at all no. because they you know, the, that story was connected with parallel universes Correct. and Jackie Tyler and all that type of stuff. And so yeah. if they got back to that core story of spare parts, is like you said, whether it you know they've convinced themselves or they've been brainwashed because there's a lot of that in spare parts how the society is made to believe this is good for them which is really horrifying that these people you know don't they lose their ability to think for themselves they lose their free will because they've been indoctrinated into believing whatever the government the you know the company gets them to do and that's far more fascinating than any you know you know tony stark flying cybermen in uh, the modern series. Won't mention the Iron Patriot, will we? No. <laughs> no. No, I mean, look, I rag on Big Finish a bit, a lot, to be honest, uh, but Spare Parts is absolutely a fantastic listen. Uh, unfortunately, as I said, the, the new series is completely bolstered up. It's that one moment, it's that beautiful Goldilocks moment where Mark Platt gets everything right. His mm. concept, his ideas, his, you know, his grasp of human characters just is perfection. And every any other form of Mark Platt story, he gets too caught up with other things. Mm. But um, yeah, Spare Parts is the perfect Mark Platt story. And for me, it is my favourite Cyberman story. But I think with the new series, though, because it's pitched at the family audience, will they really go down the full body horror, like the, the psychology of them com- wanting to convert mass people. If it's done in the proper way, it's done quite tokenistic and quite sensationalised. It was done with, you know, the the end of season two, with it's all about the, the CGI oh, yes. slicing and oh dicing God, as opposed yeah. to let's deal with the reality of you losing yeah. your humanity, like Rob yeah. said. And even and when they tried to do it in Torchwood, in Cyberwoman, it's one of the most ridiculously embarrassing stories to see because it's not come from a place of truth it's all just about crying and it's about you know high emotion as opposed to it's quite a quiet story spare Mm. parts it's about quaint little people quaint little worlds and how this you know sci-fi concept affects everyday people and it's to take a risk to do that in a television sci-fi show which is about wanting to push the visuals and the look as opposed to let's deal with this from a, a thought and a heart point of view it'll take a braver man than Moffat to do Eric Sayward Attack of the Cybermen four guys is lined up in a box <laughs> <laughs> with various uh, printer ribbon cables sticking out of them really doesn't invoke the horror of a body transformation no. does it really no. I mean the doctor at the end of Attack of the Cybermen obviously he knows the horror what's going on I'm trying to yeah. find that balance of a really horrifying yeah. concept and quite a grown up concept yeah. in, a, in, in a market that 
that is four families on a Saturday afternoon to find that balance is it's a bit of a slog it's a bit of a slog and no mm. one's done it successfully no. it's easier to make them you know a catchphrase and release this is our new version this is Cyberman 2.0 these yeah. ones move in slow motion when you when they're actually moving very fast yeah that's easier to sell than let's deal with humanity being stripped bare I'm not breaking the embargo here with the Mondasian Cyberman or slash original Cyberman coming back that potentially they might do something they might get it right but I think it's more the image of the original Cyberman being used as opposed to actually being used properly yeah. I think it's just more are we going to bring the old ones back to hmm. please we've Mr. all been burnt before so we know what to prepare ourselves for with the new series exactly so. it's not the kitchen sink approach it's the Olympic sized swimming pool <laughs> anyway. it's Moffat's final hurrah it's yeah. like we look at this season I'm looking at it with more hope but there is that potential for it to turn into like Russell T's favourite season where he threw in the best bits yeah. and didn't really do any more no. extra work. He said, why should I work harder when I can just throw in what I've done well? Mark, what's your number one? My number one is the Waston Warrior Robot. Hey! So the Opus, that is the Five Doctors, uh, <laughs> has many great things going for it. But the Waston Warrior Robot is certainly one of the cherries that uh, top this celebratory cake. Uh, it leaps around like a Freddie Mercury circa 1977 and also wears a similar style jumpsuit. It fires metal rods directly from its arms, which is an obvious improvement on the Auton design, as the robot can start decapitating Cybermen very quickly without the potential mechanical failure of the uh, hand not dropping down Auton style. Even the great man, your pert, uh, looked concerned when encountering these uh, killing did. machines. And if the Cybermen hadn't turned up, uh, both him and uh, Sarah Jane could have ended up skewered. However, if they do decide to bring uh, the Waston Warrior Robot back, uh, please don't let the original actor Keith Hodiak play him again, because let's be honest, after 30 years we could end up with another cyber controller attack style uh, situation <laughs> on our hands. Yes, the Waston Warrior Robot, I think, would be fantastic coming back uh, ninja style. The Waston Warriors are, 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 an old, are a classic Who fan favourite, you know? It was just thrown in at the last minute yeah. by, by Terence, yeah. Uncle Terry. Um and so evocative and so uh, powerful a move. Mm. And you, know, you, you saw all of him, even though he moved so fast. You, that, that, there's nothing to the imagination in that tight suit, right? He was like Cameo, you know, at the cog piece down the front. Oh, yeah. Yeah, word up. <laughs> yes. Rest on Warrior Robot, I'd love to see back. Yeah, me too. Great creation, very cheap to realise. Obviously, you have to do something with a cod piece. That could be a great um, claustrophobic episode as well. You know, sort of like, you know, corridors of a, a space station or a, yeah. a spaceship and just, you know, humans trying to outwit something that moves like lightning and based on movement and stuff could be great to see. Yeah. Any thoughts, my Rob? Uh, it was just effective in, in The Five Doctors and I think a little bit of a, as you say, I mean, a bug hunt story where it's sort of chasing characters through tunnels and that sort of thing or on a spaceship or space station or something like that i don't know whether you could turn it into a 45 minute story but it certainly is an effective and very simply designed uh, uh creature i think that's that's it for our lists one thing i like to say though boys is a congratulations on not doing any snaps no snap but b we focused again on the classic series <laughs> why do you think that is well i had boneless you had slovene we touched on the modern we mainly gone old school. We got went old school. Yeah, 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 let's be honest, we're old school. Probably because it's too soon to th- sort of re-envisage them coming back. 
So that was our top five, everyone. If uh, you like to uh, violently disagree with our uh, choices, please let Rob Lloyd know <laughs> by his LinkedIn account. No, please let us know by our 42 to Doomsday uh, Gmail account. Oh, look, all the social media stuff's at the end, so just listen right to the end and you'll get it all there, but we'd love to hear from you. So before we go, boys, how about we do some letters? <laughs> got mail. In our last drag from the archives episode, which is highly regarded, thank you for all those tweets and comments, we asked our listeners, uh, or those listeners who attended the Ultimate Adventure Play, to send us uh, their thoughts and uh, praise uh, Naimon, uh, some of them did. So uh, I believe this is from Facebook, is that right Mark? This is from our underutilised uh, stalkbook page, yes. Uh, so Miles Northcote from uh, somewhere in time and space uh, wrote, I went to both Pertwee and C. Baker versions of the Ultimate Adventure and thoroughly enjoyed both. I'd met John when he was filming an episode of Wurzel Gummidge in my hometown years earlier, but he was unable to sign anything at the time as he had his twig figures in. So this was the time I finally got his autograph. That's just a strange image, isn't it? Colin was great too, but the thing I remember most about that evening was after the performance finished, there was a second three-hander play directed by David Banks, who played a psychiatrist treating a husband and wife, who were two of the other members of the cast. Or Pippin Jane Baker. <laughs> David didn't say anything during the performance but just looked at the other two in turn as they offloaded their issues. It wasn't the greatest play, but it was done to about 10 of us in a room upstairs in the theatre and it felt amazing to be so up close with a Doctor Who regular whilst he was acting. We chatted quite a bit before and afterwards and he was really friendly. That was my first time in a more intimate get-together with a Doctor Who star and it left me wanting more. I've been to several conventions, which have all been great, but it feels much more personal when it gets closer to being a one-to-one meeting. And for a few minutes, that's what I got with David Banks that day. All thanks to the ultimate adventure. Excellent. <laughs> oh, well done. Well done, well done. I believe Mark responded by asking, the big question is, which performance did Miles prefer? And as I turn the print out here, you can tell I'm getting older. I've got to print things out. Uh, Miles said, I honestly can't remember. The Pertwee one was amazing because it was watching the great man being the Doctor 15 years after he regenerated. Whereas the Colin one was amazing because he'd been the Doctor so recently, and as the play was written by Terence Dix, it was written for a softer characterisation of the Doctor. It could have done without the songs, but they weren't that bad, and it was just great to watch the gentleman concerned being our hero in character, in costume, in front of me. So that's Miles's thoughts. Thank you very much, Miles. Well done, Miles. Now, the next letter we have, it's actually from my long-lost pen friend, Pete. Oh. Or Pirate Pete, as I call him. Rob, if you'd like to read out the first little bit, please. Thanks to Transglobal VHS Piracy, hi Mark, and the Arvo Show, I have learned that Doctor Who could be as cool as Hammer. If only it tried. Its future looked bleak, but in the latest 25th season, the spoon-playing wanker who replaced my beloved Colin Baker was finally showing signs he might become a half-decent doctor himself, if given a few more years. The TV show I loved was crawling out of its cringe-tastic Heidi-Hoo panto period. Then suddenly, speaking of panto, the ultimate adventure popped up. Doctor Who on stage, with songs and romance and a comedy space monkey sidekick called Zorg. Oh boy. The play toured the length and breadth of Great Britain for six months through the summer, with the keys to its 3D-ish laser TARDIS <laughs> passed uh, from John Pertwee to Colin Baker at the halfway point. I was lucky enough to see both its third and sixth Doctor edition, and coolness be damned, I enjoyed them both. 
Sadly, I didn't catch David Banks' fabled one-off understudy performance as the sicky doctor, perhaps, when Pertwee was off with a runny nose, or the runs, or something. I've a cyber hunch he was hamtastic, but perhaps we'll never know. I'm here to compare the leads, but a quick shout out first to a very accurate recreation of the Evil of Dark Emperor and the 3D-ish spinning TARDIS seeing its flight on an overhead screen surrounded by lasers. But I hated the songs. Everyone hated the songs. It said the producers dreamt of Kylie being cast. But jumping to Josephat, why did anyone think a badly ventilated theatre half-filled with uh, who geeks was the place for several lengthy romantic jazz ballads? <laughs> the script was something about a peace conference. Mrs. Thatcher was in it and went to the French Revolution. There was also a space nightclub with a singing vervoid and a Dalekanian bomb that was finally diffused at the play's climax by being dunked in a pot of tea. Ooh, spoilers. Anyway, so how did Ultimate 3 and Ultimate 6 compare? Well... As he passes over the iPad to me. I'm actually just trying to get the image of a singing vervoid out of my out of my head. So, Rob, I think your dream just came true, mate. I think the vervoids are back. Happily, they've never gone away, Mark, so... What would they be singing? <laughs> Probably something yeah. by my sex, I'm sure. Well, something to emphasise for starters is what a colossally big deal it was to have Pertwee back in the lead role in 89. An ex-doctor, not guesting in the multi-doctor special, but back as the lead of a new story was unheard of. And I wonder how McCoy felt about it. I suppose he was filming season 26 during the play's run, but it must have felt odd having a predecessor's name up in lights around the country. We are used to out-of-era doctors popping up everywhere now. Capaldi didn't even get to be the only doctor in his own debut story, but that's another rant. So although Pertwee was just shy of 70 at the time, it's fair to say he strode through the part rather than dashing. He didn't give us a specifically older version of the Third Doctor. It was very much Pertwee as usual, played comfortably and with relish, as if he'd never been gone. A little more bouffant and a little more like the Elder Statesman. But if the cape fits, wear it, you might say. He missed that one night due to illness, but I don't think Pertwee seemed frail or tired generally, at least not when I saw him fairly early in the run. He was clearly loving being the shaman again. The script had a few Third Doctor-specific flourishes, uh, such as neutron flows. Uh, there was a rather genteel sword fight, and the only way to hypnotise somebody was with a, a Venetian lullaby, of course. <laughs> so when Colin Baker took over, hang on, hang on, Colin, my bombshell sacking Baker came back to Doctor Who. Now what kind of craze fan would have thought Colin Baker would ever want anything to do with the series again? after all the bad blood had aired in public in the two years since he got the boot. Well me, and I was over the moon to have him back. It's interesting that no major rewriting was needed to accommodate the change Doctor. Is that because John and Colin actually had surprisingly similar takes on the role, or because Uncle Terence only got paid uh, once to write the thing, and he wasn't going to buy a new typewriter ribbon halfway through the run? <laughs> there were a few tweaks, but I've read that they were mostly worked out by Colin himself in rehearsal, so mm. the Venetian lullaby was replaced by Swanee River for some reason. A sword fight was played for laughs and as Colin flapped around the stage making an over-the-top soliloquy while holding the sword behind his back, supposedly unaware that every time he moved he was parrying the attempted sword strikes of his attacker. Because the BBC kept his original costume, a new one had to be made. And it was decided to take the opportunity to make it even worse. With no blue screen restriction, they chucked some purples in and blues to the whole horrendous melody. So mainly the difference I recall was Colin playing it more for laughs and more modestly than John. 
And of course, this cuddlier rehabilitation of Sixie would be picked up in books and audios in subsequent decades. And I'm going to write Sixie again because I bet Mark bloody hates saying it. But Rob certainly does. <laughs> I don't. I love it. I think The Ultimate Adventure is significant for revealing that audiences didn't mind an older Doctor or two returning to the lead role. Having them on board made it feel more like proper Doctor Who than if they'd cast some random soap star. Yet it remains easy to resolve debates about whether the play is canon with a reasoned response of, of course it f***ing isn't. <laughs> Perhaps it wasn't Terence's greatest script, but it provided the most memorable dicks to grace the stage until the all-male swan lake many years later. There's some champagne comedy there, I can tell you right now. Thank you, Pete. Thank you for that unprompted email that uh, <laughs> I kept pestering him about. Would we like to see the ultimate adventure out here? Of course we would have. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Listening to the um, the the Big Finish one, when they did mm. Ultimate Adventure, they did Seven Keys to Doomsday, and they did... Curse of the Daleks. Yeah, Curse of the Daleks is okay. I actually yeah. like Curse of the Daleks. It'd be great to see that back on stage. Yeah, it's it's very dated, and it's, you know, uh, sexual politics is a lot to be desired. Ultimate Adventure is just ridiculous. Re- ridiculously fun just to to see that i just go as a kid i did i would have effing loved it but mm. uh yeah seven keys to doomsday is a bit of a interesting one but yeah ultimate adventure is just so ridiculous it's a little bit time of the rani a little bit delta in the bannerman maybe they should have actually not bothered doing the uh symphonic spectacular and actually just did a run of the <laughs> ultimate adventure and get colin in for one week or sylvester in for what you know what i mean peter davison would have been knocking over all of them <laughs> um, excuse me, are any of these people actually are related to David Tennant now? So get back. Get are back. they related? Apparently, apparently, oh, apparently they were in some way, shape, or form. Who would have thought? Did wow. you know that, Rob? I'd heard a whisper. I'd heard a, just a very <laughs> gentle whisper. <laughs> a gentle whisper. So I have friends, mm-hmm. uh, Ali Ford and uh, Richard. Ali, particularly, she was one of the scientists who we had um, on the Science of Doctor Who tour. She actually saw the ultimate. Oh, adventure, did she? And you know which one she saw? David Banks. She saw. No, the, really? She saw the one-off David Banks performance. I said, I said, I said she saw. I saw the ultimate adventure. I said, oh, who did you see? Did you see Colin or did you see um, John? And she went, no, no, I saw another guy. And went, could you describe who he was in? He said, oh, I was in like a you know a tan shirt, and oh, he was in a t-shirt, and he had tan pants, the tan, and he had the one. You saw the one-off David Banks ultimate adventure. Went, yeah, he was pretty good. He was very tall, and went. She saw history nerd history can you contact her and ask her can she send us an email we are going to go for the trifecta rob we're going to go for the big one that's why you guys are australia's number one doctor who podcast (laughs) (laughs) we are the ultimate adventure podcast (laughs) thank you very much rob lloyd for guesting on our humble cast yet again. Hope you enjoyed it. I had an absolute ball. I'm amazed that we got through two top five stories over the last couple of months and we haven't snapped once. I'm very impressed with, with all three of us. I think Rob actually snapped with some of his choices, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Man, he needs to take his medication and soon. I'd just like to say that the reserve was, a, was the gastropods on my list, so... Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, they should stay on the bench. Keep them right there on the bench. Yeah. I, even wrote, I even wrote a bit about them as well. But anyway, that's all right. I'll tell you what, you record that. We'll whack it on the end. <laughs> we'll do an Easter egg. It'll yeah. be a hidden track. Rob, before you go, please pimp all your upcoming appearances wherever they are in the world. All information for me is on my website, robloyd.com.au. And then I'm off on tour to the Tampa International Fringe Festival. I'm off to the Orlando International Fringe Festival. I'm off to the Ottawa Fringe Festival. 
the Toronto Fringe Festival and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Everything will be on my website, robloyd.com.au. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, both at at Future Robbie, that's double B-Y, or you can follow me at uh, Rob Lloyd Who Me on Facebook. Should we talk about the missing social media channel, LinkedIn? <laughs> <laughs> I have realized I'm going overseas and I've had to clear space on my mobile phone, so I have actually deleted temporarily oh, LinkedIn so I can get Uber, so I can actually travel around okay. America. You can't endorse Rob for the moment. You but can't endorse me. I'm terribly sorry to hear that. So good luck over there. Godspeed. Hope Thank you. Trip over there. Go and see the show, especially Canadian listeners. Uh, crack open the Patreon account guys and uh, get out and have a look at it because uh, it is a great show and uh, it's funny it's heartwarming and fairly reasonably priced (laughs) (laughs) fairly reasonably priced (laughs) unlike the BBC effort so uh, yeah Godspeed and thank you again for coming on our podcast tonight. absolute pleasure it's a joy thank you Rob and thank you Mark for having me on thank you Rob our pleasure I've been Mark I've been Rob and I have most definitely been Rob as well keep punching You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. So Mark and Rob, my next one is gastropods. Look, stay with me. Here is a Doctor Who creature hated in its own time, laughed at, held up for ridicule, and generally regarded as a stiff-armed abomination that looked more like a latex-covered toilet roll than a slug that thought, bugger me, I can actually stand up and control the minds of the weaklings around me and hell, why don't I also try to conquer the galaxy while I'm at it? Instead, we fans should actually fear this underrated monster far, far more. More than the incompetence of JNT, more than the indifference of Sayward, more than the acidic hatred of fandom, the gastropods are directly responsible for the death of Doctor Who as a serious mainstream television product. I am Mestor. Hear me roar. Hello? Hello? Are you still there? Hello?